WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Diamond Hollow Books on Main Street in Andes for secondhand vintage and new books. Specializing in literature, the arts, Dante, mycology, and Emily Dickinson. Children's books and stationery. And Diamond Hollow also purchases used books. Open Thursday through Sunday, 10 to 5, by appointment or anytime the front door is open. Upstairs at 72 Main Street, Andes. Readings, book signings, and event schedule at diamondhollowbooks.com. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center on State Route 10 in Walton open Tuesday through Saturday for disposal and recycling, reminding patrons to keep trips to the center at a minimum due to higher than normal volume. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center hours of operation and information about materials and disposal fees at 607-832-5800. 1053 Main Street Gallery in Fleischmann's. Designed as a space to support a vibrant and active artistic community nestled within the Catskill Mountains. Presenting Motel, a mixed media installation of politically inspired work by artist Dan Herland based on a puppet play about a young woman coming to the U.S. for the first time. Opening reception Saturday, August 6th from 3 to 6. More info about 1053 Main Street Gallery in Fleischmann's and upcoming exhibitions at 1053MainGallery.com. This is Jim Router, host of Nika's Dream, Saturdays from noon to 2 p.m. Get your weekly dose of classic jazz right here on WIOX Roxbury. Live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, WIOXradio.org, and MTC Cable Channel 20. Okay, you are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable TV Channel 20 on the campus of SUNY Delhi at 107.5 FM, 
worldwide at WIOXradio.org and on any mobile device radio FM app. This is uh, From the Forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? Things are good, Ryan. How are you? All right. What have you been up to? I've uh, been running a portable sawmill quite a lot lately. Um, and then on my own time, been working uh, working in my wood shop quite a bit lately, actually. Oh, yeah? I, just, I, built, uh, I built a pretty substantial piece for my house, uh, a big uh, a dresser for the spare bedroom. Came out great. No kidding. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. I'm very proud of it. Sweet. Yeah. It's huh. uh, American Elm for the casing and the top, and then the drawer panels and the side panels are, are sycamore, quarter-sun sycamore. Gorgeous. Huh. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Took, took some time. <laughs> nice. But, yep, yeah, uh, decided to spend the hot July doing something like that. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, I've been watering my trees a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. Every few days or so. And uh, I think it's helping. Yeah, I lost the tree. Yeah. Yeah, I leafed out. Uh, it was not one that I planted. It's kind of in a dry spot, not where I would have put an apple tree if I was going to plant one. Uh, but, yeah, I inherited it with the house, and it, it leafed out fine. It didn't look, honestly, it didn't look great last year. I think the, all that fungal stress it had, yeah. all the apple trees got them. And uh, this year, obviously went into this year pre-stressed, and this heat, it leafed out great and then just lost its leaves, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. Well, I tell you that one of the best trees to plant is, um, in my opinion, for homeowners and people who can't keep up watering and pest issues is uh, mulberry. That tree just wants to grow. Yeah. Do they take dry sites? Yeah. I mean, they seem to be so tolerant of many sites. Yeah, maybe I'll replace it with that because it's a, it's a spot where a tree could get a little bigger than yeah. I'm going to prune it out. I know it can take both because... My, you know, I have one outside the fence. It's in a pretty dry area, and it's the biggest tree in the yard now. And below, they're in wet sites, and uh, although this year's nothing is wet, and they're doing just great. So yeah, I don't cool. know. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Um, tonight's show is painting the line between public and private stewardship. Uh, we had a show similar to this a months ago. I don't know how many months ago, but it was a while ago. But uh, this will be different, and... You know, I used to paint a survey line or boundary line for the state of New York, DEC, when I was 19, uh, back in 2000, 2000, yeah, 2000, and uh, we painted a lot of forest preserve property. It was uh, called Trail Crew, but no trails, it's just boundary line, and it's yellow paint for the state, and uh, you paint on forest preserve. And Forest Preserve is broken up into different designations like wild forest or wilderness. And then outside the Forest Preserve is something called the Unique Area. So we painted the entire Never Sink Unique Area, which is pretty cool. If you ever get a chance, highly recommend it to go down there. But um, a lot of Slide Mountain Wilderness Area and a lot of just miscellaneous areas in Sullivan County. So I don't know. Oh, and then there's state forests, which are not forest preserve. It means that you can have multiple use, such as you can they can harvest timber off of it. Uh, there can be ATVs, bicycling, whatever, whatever or, the state designates. Horse trails sometimes. Yeah, horse trails. That was uh, well. There was some state forest even near the Neversink. I think we did as well. But 
Anyway, um, yeah, you, you've seen St. Boundary Line quite a bit, I'm sure, right? <laughs> seen a lot of yellow paint in my day. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. The most familiar one I'm with is the one that runs right behind our hunting club. We border it. You ever see anyone paint it? It's been updated once since I've been alive. Never saw them, obviously. But. Yeah, 15 to 20 years. I mean, um, the forest rangers were really happy to see us because it was just one more line they didn't have to paint. So as far as I know, the forest rangers are the ones responsible for painting that line. Wow. So, yeah. And, you know, we're my the guy I was working with, he was 19 years old. Well, he was 18. I was 19. And uh, you just get a survey map you know with a bearing on it and it shows the lines so you could match up your compass and make sure you're on the right bearing um as rods you know a rod is what 66 feet or something oh chains i'm sorry chains 66 feet it would show like stone stone on ends and all that good stuff but um and off you went and i don't know why we didn't have a better way to hold the paint but we just had an open can of paint (laughs) I thought when you told me that, I thought that was pretty bizarre. I know. They didn't have spray paint? They didn't want to use spray paint? No, we didn't have that. Just a paintbrush and an open can of paint. Yeah. You think, like, we would have at least put, like, some kind of uh, lid on it? Yeah, well, they make those squeeze handles that go on the quart jugs that you could have used at least. No. Nope. Full gallons. Yeah, I had a two-wheel drive Ford Ranger. And once in a while, they give us that Jimmy... GMC Jimmy or Chevy Blazer, whatever you want to call it, with Posi Traction. That was pretty good, Posi Traction. But the Ranger Danger was completely bald and two-wheel drive and no Posi, nothing. And that thing got stuck. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was, you know, I've always taken care of my stuff. So I remember asking my supervisor, Gary, there. I was like, some of these areas are pretty muddy, like these seasonal highways, you know. He's like, well, just, you know, do what you got to do. So... <laughs> Just gun it across these muddy areas. <laughs> this is so stupid. Did what we had to do, man. I mean, holy uh. cow, you know. And we did get stuck, and the local farmer in Gramsville, I remember one time, had to pull us out and, you know, back his tractor all the way in and then pulled it out. I don't know why he did it. He's just being nice. Wow. You know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you learn a lot about paint and, and the boundary lines and the survey lines. And the yellow paint just doesn't follow an exact line. So any tree that's within three feet of the line is painted. So, you know, if the paint goes to the left, you would see a paint on the uh, um, the adjacent side of that tree and vice versa. And then there's through trees where the, the, the paint actually is painted on both sides of the tree. And that means the survey line goes right through the tree. And then if you see three blazes or three paint marks on a tree, that's it's witnessing a corner or a turning point so sometimes we couldn't find the line and we'd have to take a bearing or you know a lot of times even though it's a wilderness area there was in an old farm pasture and we would look for a um barbed wire mm-hmm. and we would find it and tug on it and it would show us where the next tree was i remember there was a place like that on sugarloaf mountain in in uh is that that's Sullivan County? Yeah, near Gramsville, and you wouldn't know it unless you really looked. But the whole that whole mountain was cleared, you know. I mean, we found like farm equipment on top. But if uh, you were to walk there today, you know, it's pretty mature forest. Right, right. You see a lot of that. Yeah, it's crazy. 
you know. But, you know, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I was 19, and I just thought that was neat, you know. So you learned all sorts of stuff. But the thing is, wherever the line goes, you go. Yeah. And that really sucks. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's not... <laughs> That's so. People have heard me complain probably on this radio show before about mountain laurel. Now, before I, I did this boundary line painting thing for the state, I kind of liked mountain laurel. You know, yeah, it's pretty. It has pretty flowers. It's up on the Shangam Ridge where I grew up, and you'd see it from Route 4455 as you're blazing over the mountain in your car, and it looked nice, right? Right, white flowers. Until you have to walk through it. <laughs> You really hate it. I mean, and in Sullivan County, there are acres of this mountain laurel. It's terrible. Um, it's claustrophobic because you don't know when it's going to end because you're stuck on that line. And you have to paint like a mile and a half a line. It doesn't seem like that much, but when you're bushwhacking through laurel, it's pretty long. Yeah, you could be down to a mile an hour. And again, you don't know when it's going to end. You know, There could be a turning point that just turns into the laurel again. You know? <laughs> so, so it starts you over. Right. Rhododendron was the worst. That was really bad. And there's a lot of it near the Never Sink. But then it was a lot of cool things you saw. Um, just these rocky outcrops with chestnut oak and, and blueberry on them. It was really neat to see. Uh, there's a lot of cultural things, you know, like old foundations and mill sites, you know, just in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And um, the, the waterfalls and pools. Sometimes we'd cross a stream and... Uh, just in the middle of nowhere, you know. You have no reason to really be there or go back. Uh, some of those places I have gone back, but you would have never known about them unless you were bushwhacking. And uh, that was always cool to see. What about the trees? Did you find big, sizable trees on the line? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's what I find always. The biggest ones are, are right on the line. Yeah, because people didn't want to cut them. And, uh, you know, they can't cut a tree that's blazed with with orange paint with uh, yellow paint because you'd be a hefty fine right or or it's a gray area where they're not sure yeah no one knows exactly who owns it so yeah let's just leave it alone yeah totally but um what else let's see oh yeah you'd find locust fence posts all the time it's amazing how how long those things will will exist uh, for a very long time but um you meet a lot of nice people as well. Like I said, the guy who, who pulled this out, most people are pretty nice to you. Um, you know, they're glad to see you. Sometimes, though, a line would go through someone's, like, house. I remember one place on Katrina Falls Road in Rock Hill. How did they let it that It went, happen? like, through the trailer. And I was, like, I called my boss. I'm like, uh, well, we radioed. I don't have a cell phone then. And, uh. It hits the repeater tower, and then you can talk to New Paltz and say, you know, this line goes right through the trailer. He's like, well, don't paint it. <laughs> don't paint it. It's like, okay, <laughs> and four. Now, how did you know that you were exact, or was that not being exact wasn't a big deal? It is a big deal. I mean, you're supposed to check it with a compass a lot. Uh, a lot of times we were just following the old blazes, to be honest with you. You can see the old yellow. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it was old yellow. Yeah. Um, the city of New York would use red, from what I remember, and they really blaze their, their stuff. Yeah, they, st they still do. It's yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah, it is. Nice to the, follow. The state did not. It was kind of sparse in places, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, like, uh, 
it would come to a corner and someone really got happy about it years and years ago and painted the rock and sny and i was like okay well it's a little crazy but but uh i followed the line once and you came up on this this i guess rock face in front of you where it terraced up and terraced down and it was about 20 25 feet and then there was the the line painted on the rock with an arrow pointing up obviously it goes up and over that one was a no-brainer but then there was an arrow to the right and after figuring wondering why is it pointing to the right well if you go left you kind of get kind of get cliffed out i mean it's not really a thing in the catskills it's more of a you know right rocky mountain thing but it was much harder to go left than it was to go right so the last person placing it open was you know being kind to the next person saying go right because it's an easier route to get up and over i see yeah <laughs> yeah so i could see that yeah you, it's, you know it's, it's as remote as you feel you're never the first one there no but you know besides hunters really no one probably goes back there no a lot of times people get confused and you'd be surprised some hikers would follow the line thinking it's a trail mm-hmm. it's not obviously but that would happen yeah that's a poor hike yeah yeah you end up going in a circle maybe but not everyone was happy to see us and you know i had no reason to ever question the forest preserve or the state of new york and it just wasn't in my conscience back then to do that and now i'm i'm a very skeptical person i'm skeptical about everything <laughs> but back then i was less skeptical and i just remember that the first time it happened it was on a side road from woodland valley near phoenicia and this guy, we're, we're at the dead end, and it's a private road, but we have permission to be there, so we access through private land to the state land. And we painted the whole Woodland Valley that, that summer. We were in Woodland Valley for a, over a month. Wow. And this guy, this old guy comes in a pickup truck, you know, he's creeping along really slow. And I'm like, oh, here we go, what's this? And his head's like on a swivel kind of, he's like, you know looking around and he sees that coca-cola sign on our truck the old dec insignia and he just pulls up to us and just says like you know you guys doing i'm like well we're painting the line he's like you know you're letting a lot of good trees go to waste in there i was like what the hell are you talking about (laughs) go to waste you know and uh it just you know he got me thinking though like well how does he perceive this place you know because to most people the forest preserve is just a place to recreate and walk the dog and see a nice view but he was pissed he wasn't like he wasn't a jerk or anything he wasn't arrogant he just kind of had this tone that was like tired of it all mm-hmm. like here they are again doing their thing and never gonna listen to me but i gotta say it one more time <laughs> i'm gonna vent on these <laughs> he probably saw us and was like ah oh, these guys these young they'll listen whippersnappers you know i'm gonna at least get something across him well he wasn't totally wrong it it did put on a little questioning mark in my head like well how does he perceive it because no one ever i never even heard that before like well what else would you use it for you know right right so you know i this is what he said it's a damn shame to let those trees rot in there like that that's what he said yeah and you've heard you've heard these sayings before i'm sure you know forever dead and uh, yeah, no, it's usually when someone's talking about the black cherry that, that one day dies in the forest preserves. Yeah. Well, they'll never cut them. The state will never cut them. Right. And in fairness, that was not the intention for timber when the forest preserve was created. Right. It was to, uh, you know, 
most of the land was cleared back then for farming and uh it seemed like a good idea but um that's what we're getting to is the difference between public ownership and and private ownership so you know it got me thinking like what are we preserving and how people can perceive what we were doing what we were painting inside of that golden blazes you know how they perceived it differently okay so that really alludes to what the show is about tonight is public stewardship versus private stewardship and uh like i said before you've heard you've heard all the things maybe about how some people bash the forest preserve like well you know the state will cut those trees when they need the money and um which i don't believe i mean as one guy i remember our professor in college said they didn't cut them during the great depression so don't worry about it. They're not cutting them. And, and, and they, they're constitutionally protected, so, you know, it makes sense. But um, so let's define the difference. What is public stewardship? And then we'll go into what is private stewardship. And that kind of alludes to defining the difference between conservation and preservation, too, which I think a lot of people confuse. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., and tonight's topic is painting the line between public and private stewardship. When we come back, we're going to get into exactly what public stewardship means. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree Virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man 
Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down. When the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In measured a hundredweight and penny pound. All right, that's Johnny Cash. This is from The Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight, we're doing a little academic or heady kind of show tonight. It's painting the line between public and private stewardship. I was talking about how I used to paint boundary line for the state of New York when I was 19, mostly in Woodland Valley, painting the yellow blazes, and uh, how an old man questioned me about it and got me thinking ever since. And um, obviously for the last almost 16 years, I've been working for private forest owners. So tonight's really deciphering between public owner, uh, public stewardship and private stewardship. Not saying one is necessarily better than another, but thought it would be a good way to kind of decipher the two. So public stewardship, let's define that. Created during the, really the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, in America, mainly by the progressive movement like Teddy Roosevelt. You, you know who that is, right, John? I do. Yeah. All right. He was the president. Okay, Gifford Pinchot, John. John. Yes, father of forestry. All right, there we go. Chief of the U.S. Division of Forestry and Bernard Furneaux. I think there's like a hall named after him at maybe Cornell. I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that. Anyway, Bernie Furneaux believed that the exercise of the providential functions of the state to counteract the destructive tendencies of private exploitation. You've heard this before. Basically, um, to, to reduce the over-exploitation from lazy's fair or free markets. This is something I was definitely taught in school about market failure. You probably, Have you heard of that term? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Right. Market failure can be defined as where social costs are higher than private output. So the advantage of, of public stewardship it seems to work better in a preservation paradigm. Now, what do you? Th- I, I, what do you think? I mean, I'm just—you don't have to confirm everything I'm saying here. What do you think, John? In a preservation paradigm, I mean, it does work. Obviously, I mean, look at I mean, our forest preserves. Have, did they did their job? They they we needed trees. We needed vast tracts of uh, unbroken forest. 
wilderness, right? And we've produced that. It met the goal. It met the goal, the stated goal. Yeah. So, you know, preservation, I would say, is the the most is is the paradigm of environmentalism today and i think it's one over conservation and i'll explain basically preservation is hands off right um, government regulations seem most effective at telling someone how not to do something so for example in hunting thou shall not kill that doe easy right you can do that what now conservation is more difficult to to implement it's well how do you produce habitat for that same doe so or buck? So we can kill more or less does. Yeah. <laughs> Another advan- um, example would be rattlesnakes, right? They are state-protected in New York State. And to be honest with you, the habitat is not improved for rattlesnakes because we don't really have forest fires anymore. It's the habitat that has been reduced, I would argue, the conservation of that, of that, of that animal. Right. But... The government can come in very easily and say, yeah, you can't, can't kill any more rattlesnakes. But it doesn't really know how to make quality habitat for the rattlesnake. That's, that's where it's hard because it doesn't provide the incentive. Providing incentives is difficult. So public stewardship kind of – it seems to fall short when it comes to conservation, which can be defined as wise use. That's really the definition of conservation, at least when I was in school. Preservation or public stewardship succeeds at barring the hunter from taking an animal. It fails at improving habitat for that same animal. Like I said, the rattlesnake habitat is a good example. In the forest preserve, really good at putting a fence metaphorically around the trees. doesn't necessarily incentivize people to make quality forests. Right. Right. I mean, same thing. I mean, a lot of other species you can talk about, too, individually. Like most bird species, right? Uh, if you've follow audubon at all they're always talking about uh in general bird species in decline well you can usually relate that to too much or too less or too little of a good thing right yeah some of that's linked to the forest preserve too much uh too much mature forest has resulted in too little young forest or open land and other birds suffer yeah right like um for example uh Growing up, the Nature Conservancy bought a lot of land that became Minnewaska State Park, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I remember seeing this when I was in my in my when I was a teenager. You go across the Katie Kill Falls or the Verkirta Kill Falls, and I remember seeing the sign that the Nature Conservancy put called "The Last Great Places," and and, and it is it is a great place. I love that place. You know, it's got pitch pine and sassafras and low bush blueberry. And uh, chestnut oak, some of the largest acreage of, of chestnut oak, and some American chestnut, believe it or not. And it's even got, in the places that couldn't be burned years ago, it's got hemlock and red spruce. It's got everything except for balsam fir growing, really, that you can think of. For everything from black gum to yellow poplar and bear oak, it's a really cool place. It's diverse. The problem was they've been losing all those species because people aren't burning anymore Mm. and they've done a couple burns themselves but they they pale in comparison to what a lot of our ancestors used to do before the 1940s when they used to burn it purposely for blueberries or native americans did for thousands of years but they did a good job at locking it away from development they did they did that it just didn't really provide for the conservation because that takes a lot of work it's hard to incentivize the people to do all that work i don't know i mean geez what do you think i mean if you're managing for timber it takes work no yeah time and time is money right i gotta be uh productive in my life 
and uh, for every minute I'm in the forest is usually on my own time. I'm not usually making any money. Yeah. <laughs> Costing me money. So preservation kind of fails at, at incentivizing for the biodiversity. That's what the Nature Conservancy was touting the most was biodiversity, and they're losing the biodiversity. So it gets back to that original question is what are you preserving then? Mm. So, again, I think it did a good job at locking it away. It just didn't really provide the incentives that private stewardship can do to better the quality of that same habitat. So that's where we get into private stewardship. As I said before, I think preservation has won over the culture within environmentalism for the last probably 100 years or more. It's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Right? In one day, you could write a law and, you know, forever preserved. Yeah. It's saved. It's Not much saved. nuance in that, right? The save those, right? And there's a lot of save those out there. Save this, save that. That's that's the primary method. Yeah. Well, but, you, but what's you know. you know, what's a lot you know, what's a lot more uh it takes more brain power is you know, how do you how do you make this last and get the end goal uh for a long period of time in the conservation setting? Like how can we make this whole system work together? I guess I guess you yeah, you said it without saying that Conservation is a system versus preservation is a is a, a single mind uh, approach or a single thought approach. Yeah, remember when we were at that guy's property uh, in Dutchess County. We used yeah. to do a lot of work for him. Mm-hmm. I do. And he always used that word nuance. <laughs> so there's a lot that. of nuance in that, you know. Like we're explaining to him how we would in- increase the habitat for wildlife, namely deer. Where he's like, "Oh, it's it's nuanced. It's nuanced, you know. It's and it is because." You know, it's hard to put on paper that, well, you're going to cut around all the fruit trees and nut trees. Well, first you have to identify where they are, mm-hmm. right? And then you're talking about different diameters and age classes and height differences and vertical stratification. And how big is the cut? Well, I don't know. I mean, how do you put that into, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's a feeling. Right, exactly. It's just there's there's more nuance in conservation. Preservation, as you just said, you just write a law and uh, there you go. Not too bad. Yeah, I mean, that's like I said, everyone's time's limited, and that's the easiest thing to do, so that's what we fall into, but it's not always the best choice. Yeah, and, and I think we've learned the hard way, or learning that there's impacts to doing nothing. We, we've, we've, set, we've talked about this on the show, but the impacts or costs to wildlife or plant species of doing nothing are, are what? What, what, would you, what would you think? The impacts of doing nothing? Yeah, is- what happens if you do nothing? It's, it's never going to be the same, right? It's always going to be just evolving into whatever's going to replace it. Yeah, you're just managing for shade-tolerant plants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Right. If you do nothing, you're managing only for trees and shrubs that can tolerate shade, which might be your goal. But we should be we should be conscious of that. Right. Right? If we do nothing, we're saying goodbye to red oak and gray squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> And we're saying hello to a lot of nice maple sugaring <laughs> endeavors in the future. And if that's what you want, you should do that. But just be conscious of what you're preserving, what you're managing for, or what you're not managing for. And I think that kind of has gotten lost in the whole preservation versus conservation battle. I wouldn't even call it a battle. So maybe it's a battle only in my mind. I don't know. There's no, are people talking about this? I don't know. I never heard. Have, you haven't heard about this at the gas station, John? People? Not lately, no. No, not lately. Right. <laughs> there's uh, some bigger fish to fry, you'd say, right? Yeah, probably. All right. Well, it's a big deal in our world, I guess. But uh, if you're just uh, tuning in, listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., and tonight's topic is painting the line between public and private stewardship. So we went into public stewardship. 
And public stewardship is where is really best, I think, at locking up land or telling someone what not to do, whether it's putting a line around a bunch of trees like the forest preserve or telling someone not to shoot that deer or that bear, you know, or that whale or grouse or whatever. But now we'll get into private stewardship. And private stewardship is not without its own challenges. Uh, there's tons of those. And I'm going to talk about that tonight for sure. But um, we talked about market failure which is why public stewardship became a thing, right? Because the the social costs were higher than the private output. So that's why, you know, officials back in the late 1800s, early 1900s said we got to set this aside so it's not doesn't fall prey to private enterprise, right? All right. Well, there's also government failure. Touche. Ooh. <laughs> Touche. Right, so, you know, this guy um, from Indiana University, Dean Lewis, I don't know if you say his name like that, but he came up with this government failure. I'm sure he's not the only one. But um, government failure is why the old man could not understand the waste he was seeing inside the Forest Preserve on that day. I was sitting there in the Ranger Danger truck waiting to go paint some boundary line, right? To him, it was a government failure leaving those trees to rot in the Forest Preserve, right? The ends justify the means? Yeah, he saw it as just waste, rotting. Why would you do that, right? And that was new to me at the time because that's not the commonly perceived paradigm for sure. So government failure is why that old man could not understand the waste he was seeing in the forest preserve or why state-owned lands were slow to counteract invasive species or the lack of forest regeneration or enhanced wildlife habitat. So according to Lewis, in contrast to Bernard Furneaux, Government failure is when decision makers are not held responsible for their actions because government decision makers do not hold property rights to the resources they allocate. They do not face strong incentives to use resources efficiently. This is, I'm sure you may have heard this before, it's, it's the rental car example, right? Yeah. Do you, do you take better care of a car you own or do you take better care of a car you rent? You take better care of a car you own. Anyone who's been to college yeah. knows. What does the communal usually space look like? The communal sink <laughs> is the worst place in the house that you rent. It is disgusting. Mm -hmm. If you want to see college kids, I mean, because no one takes ownership over the sink. It's like, well, who did the dishes last? You did the dish. No, I didn't. No, I, I, I cleaned mine. Right. And who, well, who cooked? Well, who ate it? Oh my guys drive me nuts. I come back from school in Syracuse and my 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 housemates were slobs. They didn't clean up anything. I'd end up half hour just cleaning up their dish. You couldn't even see then when I moved to New Paltz, I rented a house there. And I was working for the D C at the time. Dude, it was so bad. You couldn't even see the stove. I don't know what color it is. I go, guys, I can't even see the color of this cook stove. It was just <laughs> disgusting. But everyone's rooms weren't as bad. Right. You know? Right. Cause they, they didn't have, treat their room like that. They have to live with that. Do some people treat their room like that? I guess you could say they could, but they at least they would reap the cost of that, mm -hmm. right, and not others around them. But so it's just another way of, of looking at it. We tend to take better care of things we own and disregard or pay less attention to those we do not. It's not always the case, but I don't know. I feel like for the most part that is the case. My kids do it all the time because they, they don't take ownership over things. You see, they come inside, they just 
throw their shoes down, right? They don't care. It's not theirs, right? Yep, they don't have to clean it up. They clean up clean the mess, clean up the mud. Who cares, right? Yep, that'll yeah. do it. That's right. <laughs> so we'll get into things that up next about what you can do as a steward of your own private land. And, you know, the reason why we focused on private land is that most of the trees and, and acreage in whether you're in Ulster County or Delaware or Green or Sullivan, Otsego, Schoharie are privately owned. So we'll talk about that next. just tuning in you're listening to from the forest every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m talking about a different forest related topic tonight's topic is painting the line between public and private stewardship and uh we're we're talking about public stewardship before and defining private stewardship but um so now it's 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 time to talk about what can you do on your land i mean you know it's it's harder to control 
uh, state-owned land or public land, that's that's a little more difficult. Um, I used to work for the DEC, and you have to have a unit management plan and a lot of meetings and stuff like that. And uh, you're just limited, right? Because you can't cut trees there without um, certain things that occur. Like you know, I'm sure they had to go to some kind of vote or referendum uh, when they cut for Bel Air Ski Center, for example. But it's a big deal when they do decide to cut. But most people can control their own little piece of the puzzle, whether it's a half an acre or more, you know? It, when you look down on the Catskills, whether you're on a Shokin High Point or you're on Slide Mountain or you're on Red Hill, went up Red Hill the other day. It's beautiful up there. The, the woods knows no survey lines. It's just one big forest for the most part. I mean, where I live on uh, Kelder Highway in Sampsonville, I'm like the only opening in a sea of forest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went climbing up a big bitternut hickory the other day. And when you look down from a bitternut hickory, the reason why I, I choose that one is because it's the high hair and the forest canopy. It's just a sea of forest for the most part. So your half acre or your five acres added up with your neighbor's five acres adds up to a forest. So there are little things that you can do that you, as a private steward that can really help things out. So as I said before, both public and private stewardship have their place. Um, I would generally define preservation as a government stewardship model uh, that is regulated or hands-off focused. Private stewardship more as a conservation or wise use method that is incentive-based or market-based. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. On private land, we can have more opportunity. For example, you can tap trees for maple sugaring. Can't necessarily do that on state-owned land. Uh, You can do thinning cuts more readily than you can't do them on forest preserve. You can open up your oak trees for wildlife habitat. You can create bedding areas for deer. You can create habitat for grouse and woodcock. You can do these things on private land. You can you can add sorely needed fruit trees to the to the system. Some places have no mass trees. Yeah. You know where I was today in Westkill, for example, in Greene County, on Beach Hill. There's just very few nut and fruit trees or mast trees. I think that's a good thing you pointed out is is the private landowner can plant trees. You can't do that on state land. Right. I get I get asked that sometimes, and uh, it's not even state-owned land, but, you know, city of New York watershed land. It's like, why? This whole big field behind my house is city-owned. Can I go plant fruit trees and make the, you know, plant nut trees? Plant it? I said, no, you can't touch it. You don't own it. You don't own it. You don't own it. And, um... I guess, you know, Johnny Appleseed, I just finished a book on Johnny Appleseed, pretty cool guy, pretty strange guy. You know, he basically followed the Western migration and would plant trees and get them ready to, for the frontiersmen so he could sell them to uh, farmers who were settling the area. But I would go one step ahead of Johnny Appleseed in the 21st century and be Johnny Mulberry Seed. Johnny Mulberry. Mulberry is where it's at. I mean, if you want to improve your, your, um, your land for wildlife and humans... I don't think there's a better tree out there because everything loves it. Mm. And I know a lot of people don't like the white mulberry because it, you know, it, it's this part of this plant xenophobia, as I call it, because it doesn't have a green car and it's from China or something. Listen, here's a tree that can grow in the crack of a pavement without fertilizers and pesticides and produces a lot of fruit. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know what I mean? Red mulberry is from North America. But as one person was telling me, and many people actually, is that they hybridize. So you can't even tell the difference anymore between red and, and white mulberry. The white mulberries you find around Kingston, I mean, they taste like honey, some of them, that that are actually white. Yeah. But, I mean, 
the birds will want to kill you for for picking that tree that is the only tree you can pick from and the birds get genuinely pissed you know yep and they do man they squawk at you <laughs> you know i yeah. haven't haven't had birds get pissed at me but oh yeah no, I've, I've identified mulberries by listening you know you could hear as you're walking up to them you could hear the birds yeah but that's something you can plant as long as you have some sunlight you can you can plant mulberry um if you're a little lower in elevation or in a warmer site you might be able to grow some pawpaws and stuff like that change things up a little bit you know what's cool about pawpaw is is that it's it's kind of like a northern banana but the deer don't browse it at all listen there's one in west shokin hoppy knows where it is hoppy quick's in the uh, studio right now <laughs> it's in west shokin i won't say the exact road but it's at a t and when you when you come out of west shokin you look right at them there's two of them planted and they look weird because you you don't see many trees anymore that have green leaves to the to the base because of deer. I mean, if you're saying this is in West Shokin, I, I believe you. West Shokin is highly browsed. Oh, I know. Yeah. All right. It's crazy. This is really a, a browse. So should area. I be taking off the fences in my yard on those two? I just one? can't do it. I'm taking off mine because <laughs> I still don't believe it. But I, every time I go to, whether it's a member in Sullivan County, um, there's another one I'm thinking about that's in just below the transfer station in, in Olive. That is highly browsed and nothing. Nothing. Cool. No, no browsing. So, you know, that's something that's cool. If you're in a zone four, I don't know. I don't know if you'll be able to plant pawpaw just yet. But um, zone five, yeah, you know. But, you know, everyone's property is different. Like on your property, you're kind of southwestern facing maybe, south southern. Yeah, the lawn area is directly south. So that matters. Yeah. That could matter. That could help. Well, I've got two pawpaws. We'll say one died. I don't know why. I think it was dryness this year. It, yeah. it shriveled. It was looking great one week, and then I mowed the lawn, and I went down there. I wasn't paying attention. It was nothing. I rode it off, and then I mowed the lawn again the next week, and it sprouted up a four or five inch sprout already. So, yeah, it just we'll see. I had two sprouts this year. That was pretty neat to see. First time ever. That's what they want to do. They want to grow like clones all around themselves. Yeah, that's how I got these. Is they were given to me from sprouts dug up. So those are things that you can do. So you can increase biodiversity on private land more readily. And um, private stewardship can adapt to, to today and tomorrow's problems, right? Um, you can do that. But private stewardship, it's not immune to problems or poor incentives. It's not like, well, it's, it's, you could do whatever you want on private land. We all know, at least those involved with private property rights and land use, rural land uses, know that that's not true. There's a lot of laws, there's a lot of ordinances on private land. So, for example, I mean, this happens today all the time, high property taxes. And this has been studied by the uh, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry a long time ago, that wherever you get high property taxes, it incentivizes people to high-grade their forest or liquidate their best timber and sell it, or sell it, you know? So, basically, when you have high property taxes, it's incentivizing people to um, not focus on their forests as much, right? Because now money is limited. You have t town ordinances. Uh, a lot of town ordinances, they inhibit, say, a sawmill or a low-grade market. Well, what does that do? Now that forest owner has less opportunities to sell their low-grade trees. 
So how are we going to do these larger cuts that benefit wildlife when we have no market in low grade, right? And we only have a market in high grade species. We're incentivizing landowners to only cut their high grade trees. That's a problem, right? We also have a lack of enforcement for timber theft in this state. Um, it's really hard to get someone from the state to pay attention when there's timber theft. We get that all the time, you know. You almost have to catch the person red-handed. Mm -hmm. So that, that can be difficult. And to me, this is one of the worst. The lack of protection for private owners or for-profit businesses that partake in recreation and hunting activities. This is not – people don't think about this very much. We have had so – we, the Catskill Forest Association, have had so many members who want to buy land. How many times have you heard this? And start an environmental education center or interpretation, right? All the time. But then when they start looking into the liability, they decide, I don't know. And here's the thing. every The more state land that comes into view, that's unfair competition for a private forest owner because – they don't have the same liability as a private owner does. So that's not fair. We need to change the laws maybe that would protect private owners from a little bit of liability that are for profit. If if it's not for profit and you don't take one dollar, you know, then it's then it's a different story. Although you can be sued for someone getting hurt on your property, I'm sure, right? I don't know. You get sued for anything, right? I think you get sued for anything. <laughs> but so that's a problem. Um, these hurdles can incentivize landowners to either do nothing or allocate resources away from their forests. Uh, so looking forward into the 21st century, and this is obviously my opinion, if environmentalism is to thrive in the 21st century, private forest owners must not be divorced or disconnected from their land. Instead, state and local governments that claim to care about forests green areas or open space must ask themselves one question are they providing pro positive incentives for forest owners to manage their land or as dean lewix from indiana university writes how can government reduce the cost of protecting natural resources and i feel like this is something we're just going to have to deal with i mean uh, there's still a lot of private land out there are we providing the right incentives for them to do the right things there's been a lot of surveys over and over and over and usually on a 10 point survey somewhere along that you'd rate timber harvest hunting recreation and all the other values for purchasing land and timber harvest is almost always at the bottom and recreation is almost always near the top yet at the end of land ownership maybe after at least a 10 year stint timber harvest creeps up and up and up and eventually it becomes one of the primary factors of keeping the land or or maintaining it or something they liquidate after harvest so yeah, viability yeah and it's a lot of times it's someone put between a rock and a hard place that all of a sudden they have to cut the timber right you know you know to recoup some of their costs but um yeah totally studies keep keep showing that that wildlife is one of the number one goals if not the number one goal for private forest owners but it takes work it takes work to do right no it takes cutting and you've got to be able to pay for that somehow yep absolutely but um and again if we had more market diversity i think it would be easier but we only got a minute left on uh from the forest and tonight's topic was painting the line between public and private stewardship we did our best to try to define the two uh 
not saying whether one is better than the other. Obviously, I'm, I am biased towards private stewardship after working for the state of New York and working with private forest owners for the last 16 uh, years. I feel like most people really do care about their their forest. I they can do. honestly say that. They do. Most people do. It's just um, having the knowledge and the education or experience to do it and to implement it efficiently. Yeah, well, that's where, you know, Catskill Forest Association likes to try to step in. It's one of the resources out there to educate. Yep, absolutely. Well, I want to tease, uh, and not this week, but starting in the next couple weeks, where there's something else going on after From the Forest for a while. Yeah. What's the, what's the name of the show again, Hoppy? Catskill People. Yeah, Hoppy Quick. He's been on From the Forest um, more than several times. And uh, Catskill People, talk about talk about what? Just talk to people. Just talk to people and yeah, people in the Catskills. Well, that sounds good, Hoppy, and uh, we're all looking forward to that. And um, that's all I have tonight on from the forest. And uh, see you, see you next week, I guess. Good night, everyone. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in from the forest. Up a dark and dingy staircase, the old man made his way. His ragged coat around him as upon his cart he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping the vision did appear is supported by you and the following underwriters what the soap wts and company in prattsville for soaps and lotions made on site locally handcrafted candles pottery jewelry art and gifts and a hand-picked selection of books on homesteading nature and local history wts and company in the prattsville plaza and online at whatthesoap.com crea world on main street in margaretville's historic Galley Kirchy Theater. Fine jewelry, handmade in store from reclaimed gold and silver, sustainable artisanal self-care wellness and beauty products, ceramics, apparel, and things with a home. Books and vinyl records. Open Wednesday through Sunday and online at Crea.world. K-R-I-A dot world. The Delaware County Chamber of Commerce, a catalyst for sustainable economic prosperity in the Catskills, fostering cooperation, forging partnerships, promoting tourism, providing legislative advocacy, and building strong community ties throughout the region. More information at 607-746-2281 or DelawareCounty.org. 
This is Andy Cahill, host of The Andy Cahill Show.